0: What the truck! You are listening to Why the truck.
1: We've made it! Short week. Feels like Thursday. Thank God it's Friday. It's the <laughs> truck. I'm tuner. That's the dude. What's up, man? Hey, man. A
2: beautiful stormy day here in uh, the heart of Freight Alley, my friend. What's going on?
1: I am so excited that we have a show today. <laughs> am I not usually excited? Well, I'm extra- excited? I'm excited today. There's there's right. uh, there, there's going to be a lot going on today. But you know, yesterday that big news broke about Biden's executive order. What's he doing? Is he going to war with the with the ocean container lines and the rail? We're not entirely sure. But let's set the table with it, right? Talk about right here. What's in the news? Okay, yeah.
2: So here it is. The Federal Maritime Commission Chairman Daniel Moffey has welcomed a White House executive order calling on the Justice Department to help the FMC. Uh, investigate and potentially find ocean carriers charging shippers unreasonable rates and fees. Yeah, sounds, President sounds Joe good, right?
1: Biden's executive order scheduled to be announced today also urges the Surface Transportation Board to allow shippers to challenge inflated rates more easily when there's no competition between routes. The White House issued a fact sheet on Friday morning summarizing the order, which is part of a broader order that includes 72 initiatives by more than 12 federal agencies to promote competition across the U.S. economy. Today, we're going to get the rail side of it. Also on this show, we're going to be talking about a time- Autonomous trucking safety, big data optimization, more dogs of freight, and we may even settle a Twitter feud that started last night. How do you like that one, brother? All right, <laughs> let's tip the band. This episode is brought to you by Legend Transportation, which has been establishing partnerships through outstanding customer service since 2007. Learn more at Tell 'em Dude. Hey, go to newlegendinc.com immediately after the show. Nice. Now, the man of the hours here is Ian Jeffrey, CEO and president of the Association of American. Railroads Ian, Surface Transportation Board, Rail, a target of this EO.
3: Tell us what you know so far. Well, first, good morning, guys, and thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to join you. Um, yeah, so you know, to 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 call what we have seen and heard is going to be included in the EO misguided is an understatement. Um, and and quite frankly, highly disappointing at a time when we're focused on making the the transportation supply network as fluid as possible to meet what is an ever-growing freight demand in this country. The last thing that you want to do is purposely uh, put in uh, mechanisms that, quite frankly, gum up the system, adding switches, adding unnecessary switches, forcing access uh, from one railroad uh, from another railroad at a a shipper's uh, behest, All that does is come up the system and all that does is undermine railroads ability to serve their customers to invest back into their networks. And frankly, it's not good for for transportation. It's not good for for the customers they serve and it's not good for for the country. And that's not an understatement. Um, When you think about infrastructure in this country, you think about the big infrastructure push on Capitol Hill right now. Railroads are the the one type of surface transportation infrastructure that that aren't up on the hill um, with our hands out seeking seeking funds. We invest $25 billion annually back into our networks to Make what is literally the, the premier freight rail system in the world. It functions at a, a very high level. It functions efficiently, and to to knowingly take steps that would undermine that is frankly wrongheaded. And it's a, it's a debate we've had before. It's a debate being uh, being held at the behest of, of major shipper organizations. Um, and you know we're, we're up for the discussion, we're up for the debate, we're up for the fight, and we will prevail uh, because we've got data and facts on our side.
1: Ian, you sound ready for it. You know, there's a lot to unpack here. One of them was this for switching. We yeah. have a quick video that will inform our audience on the complications that this entails. Because usually you just see it as a line in an article. But what is it? The dude and I looked it up. We found this video. Let's take a look. Railroad's network, but wishes to ship its pellets on Green Railroad's network. So, for a fee, Blue Railroad has agreed to move Green Railroad's rail cars to and from XYZ Corporation. As you will see, this scenario requires eight different trains, three rail yards, three sidings, one connection, and an interchange track.
2: And a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a piece of cake, man. You, 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 this railroad wants, this customer wants to use that railroad instead of that one, so they just put the box on theirs, right? They just move it. Yeah, yeah, tell, mm-hmm.
1: us why, tell us why this is, why this is a, a bad thing and why the rails do things the, the way that they do and what the big complication here is with this four switching.
3: Sure, and I, and I would say that 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 video you just played a snippet of is a is a simple explanation of what is a complex process. So you know if that sounded complicated, you should you should really see you know the the full the full run out of, of what it actually takes. You know, at the end of the day, it is it is it is it is that interline service, that long distance service, that that single line service that allows railroads to to deliver on time and efficiently for their customers at a reasonable rate, most importantly. If you look at rail rates since partial deregulation in 1980, we are 40% less when adjusted for inflation where we were in 1980. So it's a it's a lower cost system. It is a, uh, a capital intensive and heavily invested in system. It is an efficient system. It's a safe system. And this notion that there's a lack of competition in transportation or in freight rail, in particular, um, it is—it's simply wrong-headed. It's misguided. When you look at not only the fierce competition within the the rail industry, but intermodal competition with with the trucking industry, um, there are other types of competition: geographic, product, um, shipper competition. Um, the, the 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 freight marketplace is it's alive and thriving, and it is because of the the regulatory structure in place that allows it to be dynamic and complex. <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. Just just talking about the uh, the competition between truckload and rail, or even LTL and rail, and yeah. using using those different things. I remember back in the day when it was we were we were uh, uh, threatened because double stacking was going to happen on trains, right? And there was there was that type of competition. Can you talk to more more about those different comp- competitions that are there? The geological, really, geo- or geographical competition as well.
3: Yeah, sure thing. So, like like you mentioned, that you know that that intermodal competition is is a perfect example of what is literally a day to day competition between between trucks and and rail. So various trucking companies, various railroads, um, fighting for for that business, which is so vibrant right now. Um, but right, you've also got product competition. You also have geographic. Geographic is where a a, a a a a shipper either chooses to site or sites. Um, basically, shipping based on based on where its physical locations are and the best rates it can get out of various locations. Um, again, I think it's important to note that the the, the organizations pushing this represent um, the major chemical companies, some companies that have at market caps that are larger than our entire industry. But I also think it's important to know that there are there are customers out there that that see this as wrongheaded, and when the surface transportation board went down this path back in 2014, 15, and 16. Um, the, the, the company that, that stands out to me that, that weighed in on this is, is UPS, obviously a, a major trucking company, but also a major rail customer. Um, and they saw how this was going to mess up fluidity and undermine rail's ability to, to meet their needs, which is a, a just in time, highly efficient, predictable transportation network. And so, you know, when when companies like that see the see the error in um, in a policy, potential policies ways, you know that it's not it's not the right path to take.
1: Yeah, Ian, I'm, you know, it's it, it's almost since the executive order, there's not a ton of details. It's only come yeah. through as a fact so far. It's almost just like ex, existential threat. So you have to prepare from all directions. But we have about a minute left. What's the next step for for your group and, and for the railroads in uh, staying ahead of this?
3: So this is something that we we work to educate and advocate on on a day-to-day basis. This isn't new. It's an issue, like I said, that's been around for a long time. The EO, when it comes out, I think it actually just came out since we were started talking today, um, it's a first step. It's a recommendation to the Surface Transportation Board, and uh, we're in front of the board all of the time, and we will build out our, our arguments um, based on current relevant data. And uh, we will we will make our case in front of the board if the board so chooses to go down this path, which, of course, it is an independent agency and it makes its own decisions. But we will be ready. Um, we have the facts on our side and we will make sure that our arguments and our voices are, are heard and understood by, by those in decision making places.
1: Well, Ian, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. Where should pe- what website should people go to if they want more information from your group?
3: Absolutely. www.aar.org has a wealth of information on on not only uh, rail-to-rail competition and forced access or any other economic regulation matters. So uh, uh, you can find whatever you're looking for there. Thank you
1: once again. Have a great weekend. Yeah, wild, man. It's one of those issues that it's kind of getting – it's getting tied in with the steamship lines and the ports, and they have their own issues. And it's almost like because – we don't own any of the steamship lines right well, the only stakeholder really there is in some of the ports is right. that we own the rails though so if you're looking for something to you know, like we're, we're doing something big we're making big changes it's a target it is it's, it's a an target. it's a, it seems like it's an easy target and it's a it, it's really
2: exacerbated just by the times liken it and back in the locker room as you put it uh, rightfully so uh, it, it's likened to you know the brokers who were or carriers who were screaming last year and the drivers who were screaming last year when rates dropped right
1: well yeah I mean that's <laughs> the thing. And, you know, Craig Fuller made uh, that point yesterday. It's like everybody screams about rates when they're at the top, but yeah. nobody's fighting at the bottom when they're when they're taking advantage of it. Yeah. And yeah. we talked to Patrick Berglund last week. I mean, he was talking about. Yeah, of course, he thinks that the steamship lines are culpable in a lot of ways and the consolidation. Sure of the they are. Lines, the shipers the are as well. Agreements. You know, he even said it was barely a step above. You know, I don't want to use the C word collusion, but it was it was a barely a step above regulators. And Now regulators are looking at it again. So we'll see. Yep. And you know who knows a bit about regulation? It's Steve Kenner. He's the VP of safety at Locomation. They're another industry now that it's it's come up and it's been talked about, bringing some uh, some regulation into there. You've, you've Your team is always fighting against stuff like that. But Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, you have an amazing background. We were we were looking through this and, and you, got, you got a wonderful background. The only thing that stuck out to us as a bit of anomaly was the time at Apple. Were you making that Apple car over there?
0: Well, I'm still uh governed by a non-disclosure agreement. So all I can say is I worked on a special project. Okay. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> well, what attracted you to locomation then? <laughs> well, I, I gotta say um a couple things uh for sure. One was I I think the approach uh to automation is a more practical and realistic approach. Um as you're as you're aware, I know you've had you know some of my colleagues on your show before. So, you know, our first deployment is actually an autonomous relay convoy that's a two truck, two driver approach. So so the first vehicle will still have a human uh, in the vehicle and uh, and then we'll learn from that over time uh, rather than just trying to jump to a fully automated uh, vehicle with with no drivers in. So so I really was excited about the approach. The second uh, thing that attracted me was actually the the leadership and expertise that's actually already in the in the company, right? Carnegie Mellon robotics uh, experts. Uh, there's trucking industry leaders, uh, people that were high level government officials in the U.S. Department of Transportation. All of those things, you know, attracted me to uh, uh, to to locomotion. Um, and you know, they the other the other part is my role itself, you know, the ability to be able to, you know, sort of influence um, and have a leadership position in a growing company.
2: That's excellent stuff. So your growth over the years into this, your background into Locomation, I think is is important to get into to see what the intelligence is behind Locomation sure. and the people that are there, right? They're not the just... Tribal knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Tribal knowledge. Can mm-hmm. you talk to that a little bit? I mean, you come from Kettering all the way up to Locomotion, right? Or yeah.
0: Locomation. So So I spent... A lot of years in uh, traditional auto companies. I went from General Motors to Chrysler to, to Ford, and I had a series of, you know, increasingly responsible positions. The last position I held in an auto company, I was actually the global head of safety for Ford Motor Company. So it was uh, an exciting uh, position. I learned a lot from it. And actually, it was from that position that I went to go work uh, for, for Apple, uh, and then, uh, and it's no secret they were working on autonomous technologies. You can find some of that in the public domain and then transitioned to work for Uber, ATG and then Aurora. And then, you know, finally now to, to Locomation. So I spent the last six years actually working on, you know, for tech companies on automated technologies. So so I'm kind of a weird hybrid of a traditional auto person that sort of understands you know, that environment and what it takes, and then a person that spent a lot of time on a tech company. Company, So, I'm, you know, kind of a, just a, a weird combination of those two things. So, can you
1: talk to us a little bit about the current safety regulations that we're looking at for autonomous vehicles, including those uh,
0: NHTSA's new reporting requirements? Sure, sure. So, so first of all let me say there there are sort of two categories like one is regulations that already exist and you know as a good corporate citizen of course we will make sure that we comply with all you know federal state and local regulations in any area in which we we operate and those regulations sort of encompass you know two basic things like one is there's regulations concerning you know the the fitness of and the instructions for The drivers themselves. And then, you know, there's regulations pertaining to the safety of the machines, you know, that they're driving. Uh, So, so those, you know, basically existing regulations were put in place because those agencies are charged with saving lives, right, and protecting all of us, you know, in the United States that, you know, that participate, you know, um, and operate, you know, and get exposed to public road use. And then the second ones are ones that are sort of in development. And so we're not just um, making sure we understand current regulations. We're also working on voluntary standards that generally form, you know, a strong basis uh, for future regulations as well.
2: Yeah, so Steve, you know when a when a, a Tesla crashes, there's it makes huge news, right? Yeah, or yeah. when an autonomous vehicle there's an accident with one, it makes huge, huge, huge news. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Even the NHTSA's, you know, the requirements after a crash, reporting and how important it is to get the facts out there about the safeness of these vehicles, but also the facts about a crash that occurs,
0: right? Yeah, so great great question. So so certainly so NHTSA's reporting requirement. Um, You know, that that was recently, um, you know, added to be honest, most responsible technology companies, if you were involved in a crash, would already informally notify NHTSA and make them aware of the circumstances of the of the crash. Uh, And then in some of the crashes as well, you know, uh, some of the organizations like NTSB would also, uh, you know, perhaps investigate, you know, those those kinds of crashes as well. So what NHTSA was asking for, in fact, was something that informally people were already doing. And in fact, the time frame within which they want the reports um, are, you know, were actually less stringent than some of the states uh, that, that ask us to report out, right? So it seems for sure, you know, very reasonable to make sure that people understand the circumstances of the crash. Of course. Within one day, you might not know as much as you would as you continue on through an investigation, but I think it's really important for people to know that and to it, for that investigation and the facts surrounding it to be you know, transparent because it's going to be really important to convince the motoring public about the safety of autonomous vehicles going forward.
1: When you look at something like hours of service and you look at a human with you know the, the the robot truck that sort of tandem driving, does that have any impact on regulations um how how is that being looked at now in terms of you know driver fatigue and what that means to have that kind of driver assistance
0: yeah so so for sure you know hours of services is and existing uh, requirement. And it's really important uh, when the human's in the loop that the human is, you know, able to accomplish, uh, you know, the driving task that they're faced with, right? So, so for sure, the way we've approached it is to make sure, that the drivers have as much or more rest than they would if they weren't involved in an autonomous relay convoy, where once you're on the highway, we have then the one driver that's leading the two trucks while the other one is is able to get some rest. Uh, So so that's super important. And we think we're actually creating a situation where drivers will be more rested. And then we're also um, going to have you know, monitoring uh, technologies that are already existing, right, to be able to also, you know, real-time understand whether for some reason, you know, the driver is fatigued and maybe needs to take a break.
1: What's the next thing we should look for in this space to come up? What's the next hurdle or the next challenge for for Locomation insofar as someone from from your seat, from a safety perspective?
0: Yeah, so so for sure, the thing that we need to convince ourselves and everyone else is, that it's acceptably safe for us to operate you know on the roads like and we need to make what we would call sort of you know a safety case like in what way are we going to be you know safe and good stewards of using the public roads and so being able to put that out in a way that's understandable to to the public and and then also have the evidence behind that is going to be a very important step and you've seen a lot of people talk about that but when it comes to actual uh, deployment, you know, the, there's been a lot, of, um, a, a lot of discussions about what it takes to deploy, but actually accomplishing that and then being able to do that in a way that you document and then understand so that people understand why they should be confident in how we're approaching uh, the autonomous relay convoy. All makes sense. Steve, thank you Absolutely. so
1: much. How do people learn more about locomation?
0: Yeah, we so we do have um, you know a uh, a website, and so um, I think you know people can go on there. You can just Google our company's name, and then you can uh, you can get to it. We also have you know some contact information and emails and phone numbers if people want to find out about you know more about the company. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you for your time. Have a great weekend. Take
2: care. Do the honors. Ooh, <laughs> let's do the honors. Our next guest. <laughs> I know why, Christy. Knitchell, who is president and owner of Knitchell Logistics, is here. Christy, how are you today?
4: Doing great. Thank you for having me today.
2: <laughs> I've been trying to teach uh, Dooner how to pronounce your last name. We've looked at various uh, we- uh, you know, different podcasts and stuff. and uh, So that's why he tossed it to me. I think that was right. Knitchell.
1: Hey, Christy, I know you from LinkedIn. I- I've seen you around. He mentioned you've been on other podcasts and stuff, but give us an intro. Give us our audience. Uh, let us know what you're all about.
4: Sure, absolutely. President, CEO of Kanisha Logistics. I started in the industry when I was 19. Um, That was back in 97. So I've been in the industry for 24 years. Started working for my father um, back then. And since then, we've opened Kanisha Logistics in 2003. And we're a woman-owned company. Um, Our niche is intermodal. So 80% of our revenue is um, shipping freight on the rail. But we also have a truck brokerage and an LTL division as well.
1: Well, tell us about that. We talked to uh, Ian Jeffries from from the American Association of Railroads, right, about this Biden executive order. They're, you know, trying to sanction the railroads, figure out how to do track switching, all those kind of things. What's the state of intermodal right now? What is what is your perspective on what's going on on the railroads?
4: It is absolutely crazy. Um, In my uh, time in this industry, I've never seen it as challenging and difficult as it is today to move freight, to get capacity. Um, So it's just really been, um, you know, difficult. So we're trying to navigate through that, find other solutions and options um, to make it happen. Obviously, if you're, you know, reading about intermodal, you're hearing that there's chassis issues, uh, chassis shortages, you know, equipment in, you know, different areas, there's just not enough capacity. And one of the biggest issues is obviously the drivers, um, you know, not wanting to wait within the ramps or the ports. Um, so there's a big issue there too, with just getting the capacity from the drivers, you might have a shipment in a box ready today, but a driver might not be able to do it for a week or two. So it's, it's causing a lot of issues.
2: So, Christy, in, in your opinion and what you're seeing is going on there, it, it's, a, it's a sign of the times, right? But is this something that we need to uh, just kind of work through and there will be improvements that, are, that will come out of this and efficiencies that will come out of the, the issues because of the co- pandemic, obviously, but, uh, or is, is this needed from Biden? I mean, do we need an overhaul of, of intermodal?
4: I mean, I think that there's some things we definitely have to take a look at for sure. But I do think that this is going to be like this for some time going into next year, maybe for the whole year next year. I'm not sure. But it's also trying to, you know, change behaviors, I think, with shippers and how they do their business. Um, You know, a big part of the issue, too, is shippers that are holding on to containers Um, and not being able to utilize those boxes for other shippers. And I'm meaning like using them for storage or they don't have space and they're holding them, you know, for 10, 20, 30 days, that type of thing. So I do think, you know, like everything has happened over the years, it's going to change again. It's just going to take some time. And I do think it's going to be looking a little bit different. But, you know, once capacity changes at some point, um, you know, like everything I said before, um, you know, over time, Those rails are going to be looking to see, well, what can we do to bring some business back um, on the rail? Because a lot of stuff is being pushed off just because there's just not enough space.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've looked at some of the statistics here, and it's like 10, 11-day delay on rail as of a couple weeks ago out of the West Coast. Um, That's a line in an article, but in the real world where you're sitting, when there are these uh, extended delays out of the West Coast, even getting things moving on the rail, what does that do on your end when you're expecting things to arrive, you need it picked up, you've got to, you know, you got to assuage your shippers and make them feel good? What goes on in your operations?
4: Yeah, it's definitely challenging because a lot of customers already have delivery appointments set. Um, They already have their operations set on that end. So when you're shipping something in and it gets there and say it's not on time and you're having to reschedule, like I mentioned before, the shipper might be able to take it timely, but then you can't find a driver to take it for a week or two. So then there's a lot of charges that are involved, whether it's storage. Um, container charges that they call per diem. So those are challenges that we're trying to work through with our customers, their charges a lot of times that we eat and that we're also trying to, you know, fight with the railroads. Hey, can you help us out a little bit here? Because the inconsistent trains, um, you know, schedules, transit times. So it's really hard to plan around that, um, especially when shippers are saying, okay, I can wait 15 days. You know, what's it look like? I mean, every week it changes. Some weeks might be better than others. But I can tell you L.A. and Chicago are probably the two worst markets right now. They're pretty much shut off for, you know, doing any additional freight right now unless there's something on the spot market or you have an extra box that you can reload. Can't even really start new business in those areas at this time. It's very challenging um, unless you find other solutions with like 40 domestic boxes, um, those type of things.
1: Yeah, Michael, Vince and I were yeah. talking earlier about this executive order. And we were talking in terms of ocean freight to each other before we went on air. and We're like, we don't own these steamship lines, so what can we do? I mean, there was something in there at the ports about demerge and detention, which, you know, obviously, if you've worked in shipping and you've worked in operations, which I have, you know how unfair deter- demerge and detention can be at times, because you can't, like, if you don't have the ability to pick up the container, why would you get charged demerge and detention? You're yeah, not especially doing... When
2: the person who's charging it, it's their
1: fault. I know, you're not doing anything malignant. <laughs> yeah. It's the same Thing happening on rail right now with these detention charges and these storage charges you can't like how can you charge me storage if I can't remove the container
4: yeah it's it's kind of a similar situation maybe not to the extent of the international market because it's pretty bad right now but I will say um, you know, just like I mentioned, you know, you have a delivery date. It should get there on time and it doesn't, even if it's by one day. Um, some of these shippers, again, sometimes they can't take it for a week or two or, you know, they can take it and the dray can't pick it up because they're booked out a week or two. That's really what's happening. So it is the same thing. We're getting charged for that. Um, and that's a discussion, you know, we have with the rails that listen, you know, we know the customers need to take these boxes faster. They need to unload them faster, but when they're not on time and they can't, because they already had an appointment, we have to change everything around again. Um, it makes it very difficult and it's very unfair. I feel that we have to pay or customers have to pay, but that's just how it's been. So I do think there's going to be a lot more conversation around that. I've had some conversation myself with the rails about that. Um, so I don't know how or when or if that's going to change, but to be quite honest, it should because it really isn't fair. Um, you know, and like I said, the rails really want the the customers and shippers to change their behavior on what they're doing. But in the same token, um, when the transits aren't on time, that also screws everything up as well in the supply chain.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, we've always talked about it when when service gets uh, worse, prices go up, right? <laughs> You're paying more and more for, for worse and worse. So Christy, talk right. about, talk about the uh, flexibility between uh, being able to book door to door versus ramp to ramp and control that either, either, either end of that intermodal play. Can you talk to the different efficiencies there? And because a lot of our audience may not know the differences between uh, the ability sure. to purchase ramp to ramp versus door to door.
4: Yeah. So, a ramp to ramp is is basically what my company does. We have the rail contracts with the companies and we have the dray relationships so we piece all that together which is a door to door product to the customer. But then there's also a door to door product that the rails sell themselves direct-to-truck brokerages now, um, or even companies like myself can use those products. We do use the door-to-door products from the rail, not as much as the ramp-to-ramp, because, again, we put that in the rail's hands, and it's their relationships. They control that we feel we have to make more phone calls at times to kind of control that. I've spent 24 years building relationships with our carriers on both ends. So we feel we have more control when we do the ramp to ramp. And then we also have our own network of boxes that are going into all different areas. So then we can also marry up other shipments and try to get other terms, that type of thing when we're doing that um, ourselves. So obviously, you know, working with my um, company, um, that's generally what we do on that ramp-to-ramp side. It doesn't mean that the door-to-door products from the rails are not good either. They're doing their own thing doing that. Um, but like I said, we've spent a long time building those relationships. And, and a lot of times I feel for us it's more efficient. That's how we do it. Um, you know, and, and to me, it, we get a lot of efficiencies out of the network we have because of how many boxes we have and what we're moving with the railroads.
1: Hey, Ashley on your team sent us some great pictures of blocking and bracing. And, you know, let's speak a little bit to storing freight inside these containers and what you have to be mindful of and some of the training that goes into it. Let's take a look at these pictures, please. Um, Yeah, Christy, tell us a little bit about what we're looking at here.
4: Yeah, so those are shipments of rice. We do a lot of rice out of Northern California. So when you're shipping a container across the country on rail, it's very important that there's proper blocking and bracing because there is movement. There's cranes lifting these containers up and down. So if they're not properly um, stable within those containers, the product can end up looking like this beautiful all over the floor. Oh boy. So that's the last thing you want to do. And what I will point out too, is that when you're shipping truck, you don't block and brace the same way as you do on rail. So we have had customers that ship a lot of truck you try to convert them to rail, and then we have to send in the rail or talk to them about the proper ways to ship on rail because you can't just use load bars. Um, you have to have airbags, and even as you see here, some airbags popping out. So when you're going across the country from the West Coast, sometimes, depending on the elevations, if they're not properly um you know, blown up to the to the right levels or whatnot, they can just pop right out of place if they're not in the in the proper place and that type of thing. so it's very important that those things are done and and we obviously bring that ed- education to our customers, and the railroads will go out and visit the customers to make sure it's done properly.
2: Yeah, I've actually had to take stuff back to people uh, and refuse to haul it because they would not properly brace it oh, yeah. <laughs> for it back in the day, and they just don't understand that. But uh, it's it's incredibly incredible. Well, I mean, someone's gonna
1: eventually open that container. Yeah, some of these eventually get <laughs> open. It. I was
2: just trying to save them. I mean, I was the bad guy, but I was, I'm just telling you, it's not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm just doing <laughs> you a favor. So uh, hopefully they learned their lesson. What I find c- incredibly interesting, and can you talk to this a little bit, is the beginning of your career, right? So you, you came out, uh, you've been in it for 23, 24 years. You come out of high school, you start, and, and you go to college, you're in a 3PL, and then you come home and say, hey, dad, let's, let's start uh, uh Logistics. Yeah. How did, how did that work?
4: Well, actually how it worked was I was working a couple jobs, running a couple pizza shops out of high school. I did some college and decided I was going to buy one of the pizza shops and talk to my father about it. And then he convinced me to come work for him. And we were, he was an agent for another company at the time. And instead of buying the pizza shop, which he thought, you know, you're not going to be happy making, you know, $40,000 a year, <laughs> which I thought was great at 19, yeah, um, yeah. you know, Then it convinced me to go work for him and um, you know, I actually quit college. I never finished and I just have worked for him since then. We opened the company in two thousand three, took over the company in two thousand
1: seven. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's a that's a really that's a really cool story. And you know, it's such a story of Frank because so many of us are multi generational in this business and then we get lured into this Roach Motel that is the logistics industry, and then you can't get out of it. (laughs) Then you then you're stuck here. But, you know, it's awesome. I'm so glad there's platforms like this now because now a bunch of, you know, freight nerds can can communicate where usually there will be nobody to talk to unless you're at a conference. And we are freight nerds. Let's <laughs> usually, put it that way. It, it is exciting. We do chin. love to talk about it. Uh, well, what, what, talk to us a little bit. So we had a show on Wednesday, The, the Great Resignation. We are talking about The Great Resignation in Transportation. A lot of people coming out of this remote world, this pandemic world, a lot of opportunities out there as workforces look to restaff, making it, you know, a, a good there's – a, there's a lot of people on the market, but there's a lot of people hiring – at the same time, it's raising wages. What are you seeing from where you sit?
4: Yeah, so what we're seeing is the same thing you just said. Um, you know, the, the rate at what we're bringing people in went up roughly $5,000 for an entry um, salary. Um, it's been difficult to get people. We've just hired six people um, to our staff recently, but it took several months to get people um, in here. Um, now we have the staff, so we're okay for now. But, yeah, it's definitely been challenging. Um, And it's been challenging to get some people back to the office. Um, We started a plan that was two days a week. Recently, this week, we just started bringing them back three days a week. And next month will be four days a week. And we're going to allow a flex day on Friday for them to work from home with like an actual plan of what they need to do to be able to do that. So I feel like coming out of this pandemic, um, the employees definitely have earned a benefit of being able to do that. And us obviously as a company becoming more flexible. I mean, there's no doubt about that, that you have to. And what I'm hearing too is obviously a lot of job opportunities available to move from company to company. Obviously, some companies are doing completely remote what we have found is that our operations staff truly need to be in the office here. It just seems to work a lot better for collaboration. Um, you know, picking up phones, you just can see and know what people are doing. On the admin side of things, there's other jobs that you don't necessarily have to do that. So there might be a little bit more flexibility there, but I feel like we've kind of gotten over that um, that rough spot of, you know, getting people in and back and doing, you know, what they, they should be doing here. Um, it definitely... I would say is challenging for a lot of other companies. I've talked to more than what it was for us.
1: Yeah, my, I think back to my first year or two as an entry writer over at FedEx Trade Networks, and I knew nothing about this business. And it would have been really hard to learn uh, in a remote environment, oh, yeah. I had so oh, many yeah. questions during those early days, especially with with hot shipments like air freight that I was doing, some of the ocean freight shipments, and a giant client like Reebok and Adidas. Um, it, it's really tough, but the, the, the trouble also, though, Christy, now, is that a lot of people, you know, have had a taste. They've had a taste from that sweet fountain. Of uh, the remote world, <laughs> um, <laughs> <Sweet job. laughs> it, it's tough. I guess you got to incentivize it, right?
2: Yeah, you have to incentivize it. But you, you, I mean, you're absolutely right because even when we're talking about the different vernaculars that you learn and the different and the, we speak differently and we forget some of that, so people don't know what a yard hustler is or a yard yeah. horse is or a dolly is or a jib locks. And you're not going to learn that when you're remote, right? Yeah. And so learning those those little buzzwords and phrases that make you legitimate to a customer. Uh, you have to learn those and those things. But, uh, so Christy, what uh, speaking along hiring and getting people, obviously you've done very well as a woman in this industry and we love to promote diversity and women in this industry. What's your advice, uh, to, uh, the women out there that are kind of looking at this or maybe shying away?
4: I think that women need to put themselves out there. They need to be heard and, you know, just do what I'm doing. Um, I have a lot of women that I mentor. Um, I'm also part of another podcast called Ladies Leadership Coalition. Um, And that's, you know, trying to get women to, to be able to have like a sounding board to go to or even men as well. But, you know, I didn't have, I feel like a ton of support or help in this industry Um, You know, obviously it was very male dominated when I started um, and now you start to see more women. But I think women are afraid to put themselves out there and speak. And obviously, if you look me up, I have stuff all over the place now and it's truly helped my company. It's helped me with confidence building, um, with customer relationships and and all kinds of things like that. And I think women can be a great fit within this industry. And, you know, we just need to be out there and do our thing and reach out and don't be afraid to help uh, to ask questions for help and whatnot.
1: Now, Christy, uh, the other day I got to speak uh, at Nichols College, right? And I got to speak to this, these MBA students about supply chain and global trade. And I, and I love it because when I was going to college uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there wasn't a, a ton of opportunities to to learn in logistics. And you can actually see that in the hiring. When I got into this industry when I was 25 years old, um, I, the next closest person to my age at FedEx Trade Networks was 38, Right. And, you know, and this was the same true at a lot of the different three PLs in the Boston area. That that's that's changing. I think. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing younger hires come in?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say the generational change is a little bit different, though, than I think when I started, because I was 19 when I started. And yes, we are seeing the younger, especially a lot of out of college and whatnot. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely something that we're going to continue to see. And hopefully, you know, I know there was something else I I noticed out there too about the whole non-compete thing. I hope that goes away because that's Mm -hmm. also deterring those younger people that don't realize when they go to a company that has something like that in place um, and then they find out they can't leave or it's an issue if they leave or whatnot. So I feel it's kind of tarnished that younger group, but we're hoping that that will change and just, you know, be in front of them at college and career fairs and whatnot to, to bring them in because I think that's where um, you know, you see that fit within our company and other companies.
1: Yeah. I worked for this one and, and they're terrible. And, and they're, they're, a lot of times they're not enforced They're just used to make the employee's life more difficult. Like I started at and my fault, but I started this one company one day early on my non-compete. It was in like the new year. I don't know, 31, 30 days a month, who knows, but, and they sent it via certified mail to the new company that, Oh, I'm not supposed to be working here. I couldn't start then. And like it it caused like a big issue and it made the job weird. And you know what? I walked away from the job because, because of that. So thank you so much for sending that non-compete for no reason, which you never even forced to begin with. You know,
2: Chrissy,
1: <laughs> right. yeah, right. people who, who need to navigate this very difficult intermodal market and they want to work with you, where should I send them to?
4: You can send them to our website at initiallogistics.com. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, you can find us, you know, anywhere. So we'd definitely um, be happy to help and answer any questions.
1: Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank Have you, a great Chris. weekend.
4: Thank you.
1: All right, again, we'd like to thank our friends at Legend Transportation for sponsoring today's episode. Legend partners with strategic customers while providing seamless solutions for its drivers. It is West Regional's premier freight transportation company. Learn more at Tell Them Dude. Go to NewLegendInc.com immediately after the show. Hey, how about we talk to John Cox, Senior Director of Solutions oh, yeah. Design at DHL, we DHL Supply Chain. He wants nice. to talk about how they're using big data to optimize their supply chain. And, uh, you know, DHL Supply Chain, they move a lot of stuff, so they probably they have do. a lot of they, data they move making a it big. Things. thank you john thanks for joining us yeah it's good to be here how's uh how's life over at dhl supply chain it's been a it's been a wild year i imagine you you folks have been very very busy
5: yeah we've been we've been a little busy obviously uh, a lot of change in the market right now right obviously as we go from the covid craziness to the post covid craziness i mean it's it's uh it's a lot of the same stuff, right? There's a lot of capacity constraints out there in the uh, in the freight market. Um, <clears throat> we're dealing with a lot of, uh, a lot of demand crunch in our warehouses, right, trying to understand you know how do we get back everybody back into um, our operations safely, get them back into our offices safely so yeah it's uh it's been a wild ride, and it's going to be a wild ride for the next few months, and I'm certain of it, so
2: yeah, it certainly is because we're post. But some places are still in the wild throes of it, right? So we're kind of post and not kind of post, that kind of thing. So talk to us, uh, John. How is DHL supply chain using data to optimize transportation?
5: Yeah, so we've got a lot of great tools, um, you know, we uh, from a, from an optimization standpoint to from a solution design standpoint, which is, uh, you know, what my team does, we look more towards new business, right, and looking for synergies between business that we're bringing in to, to our, that we're looking at uh, to bring in and pairing that up with what we're already managing for our customers, right? So we manage about $2 billion in freight uh, with uh, around 30 different accounts within our control towers, and then we have uh, about 1,500 power units we run for dedicated. So we have a very large transportation presence in North America, and we also operate uh, warehouses uh, across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, a lot of that freight we have visibility to just from the fact that we're, uh, you know, we're shipping out, uh, you, know, uh, you know, thousands of shipments a day. And so, taking all that data together and understanding where synergies are between different customers, it's important for us because that's really what our value is. It's being able to use that scale. Uh, to to drive value for our customers, and we've developed some tools in house. We developed a, a, a software platform called Transport Network Optimizer, which is um, something that we couldn't really find out in the marketplace, and it's allowing us to take, say, we get a customer's uh, annual shipment file, right? Uh, all of their freight spend for North America, let's say there's you know 50 outbound locations, any number of suppliers are shipping inbound, being able to take the complexity of that network, overlay it with the complexity of the networks we already manage, and understand where those optimization potentials are, whether it's maybe looking at new dedicated fleets, running cross-stock networks, running continuous moves on truckloads. That's something that we didn't have a capacity to do that we now have developed in-house and allows us to have some really uh, insightful conversations with customers, um, you know, about where we see opportunities in their network.
1: Let's talk about that. So we're at high level here. Let's drill down. Do you can you share a real life example of how DHL has used the control tower? Yeah, absolutely. So, from a
5: from a control tower standpoint, as you guys can aware, as we talked about COVID uh, just a minute ago, um, you know, we're helping to distribute COVID nineteen vaccines uh, both here in North America and globally. And our control towers are the uh, they're they're the the brains behind those operations, right? So, we're using uh, our control towers here in North America, working in concert with our control towers globally, to ensure that. Uh, there's, uh, you know, a seamless process from uh, from shipment to delivery to wherever those vaccines are going. Right, so we've been able to give visibility to, you know, where those where those shipments are. Obviously, these are highly highly temp controlled. Uh, uh, shipments, right? If we're thinking about the Pfizer vaccines, that has to be kept at a very specific temperature. So we've got visibility to where those shipments are in transit, where they're at in every step of the supply chain. And so, you know, that's a a real world example. We're obviously very proud to be a part of that process, Um, but that's that's a way that we're harnessing the power of our connected control towers to really make an impact uh, on people's lives.
2: Gotcha. So how, how does that translate into decision-making at those customers? How do you take that data and translate that into that end-to-end visibility? Can, you know, yeah,
5: yeah, no, great question. So we've got, um, so obviously internally, uh, you know, we've got uh, our OTM system, our TMS system that, that we operate our control towers off of. That's integrated with our carrier base uh, via um, both direct EDI connections as well as our TNET platform. It's a proprietary API link that we use with our carrier base. Um, We've got connections into our warehouses as well as the warehouses that we don't manage within our customers network. All that's uh, brought into one place within my supply chain, which is a visibility portal that we have for our customers. And so, you know, similar to if you were tracking, you know, your Chipotle DoorDash to your house, you know, work from home, um, you know, any of our customers can get on and, and, and track any shipment they want across the network and understand exactly where that shipment's at. And that's allowing them to understand, okay, proactively, where are my shipments at? Do I have any issues in any part of my network that I need to be able to, uh, that I need to be able to work around? And our teams and our control towers are proactively helping our customers handle those situations. I think you had Nick Torpion last week. he talked a lot about um, what we're doing with everstream analytics from a supply chain risk standpoint. It's a lot of that same visibility that we're supplying through uh, my supply chain to help our customers work collaboratively to collaboratively with us to solve some of those supply chain issues.
1: John, we have, uh, we have a lot of students uh, who who listen to us, and um, one of the things that I – especially since they're all looking for jobs now, right? And there's so okay. much hiring in this market, so I got a question for you before we let yeah. you go. What does a senior director of solution designs do at DHL Supply Chain? If someone would have that okay. job, like what's on no, your desk You know right right what?
5: Now? That's a fantastic question. And if uh, – yeah, if there's any students out there, right, I think this is – I think you're in a great industry. You've picked a great spot. Um, I over the last year, I think I've never been so proud to work in logistics. Finally, people understand what I do for a living. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, right? but you know, oh, as far count as my day to
3: day.
5: Exactly. Um, yeah, for, as far as what I do in my day to day. Um, I love doing solution design specifically. We're uh, most of what we do in solution design is looking at new business and, or looking at ways to make uh, our customers' networks more effective, more efficient, more responsive. And so there's always a problem to be solved. And uh, if you like to work with large data sets, if you like to think about ways to make, you know, make things just a little bit more efficient. Right. Uh, And especially if you've got uh, if you you just like to understand how things all come together, you know, that's what solutions design is. You know, we're working with, uh, you know, obviously we're in the data, we're developing a solution. Uh, for you know, you know how many you know, if it's dedicated fleet, what are the equipment requirements, all that stuff, the brass tax, right? But we're working with all parts of the organization. We have visibility to all the major players, and then we're also working with the customer as well, right? So it's you know, it, it's a very unique spot to be in. And I think um, you know, definitely solution design is something I'd highly recommend for anybody who's exploring this industry. Uh It's a great way to just get exposure to to everything. So uh, I dig it. Very if you fortunate like- to be in the wrong end.
1: I like it. If you like tech, if you like puzzles, I mean the awesome thing, and you mentioned it there, and and we agree with it too. I uh, my whole goal is to make freight mainstream. I like I, you know I don't necessarily like a container ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal, but I no. do like the attention that it brings yeah. to supply chain because people become more familiar with what we do. You and people start asking you conversations. You start to feel important, normal people, not just yeah. freight people, yeah. normal right. human yeah. beings. Yeah, I suddenly <laughs> realize that you
5: know the boxes on the grocery store shelves just suddenly materialize there, right? Like it takes there's a whole process to get everything that you have everything you're buying in your cart there's there's somebody there's somebody delivering that product somebody picking it off a warehouse shelf and i yeah. think finally everybody understands what all goes into that it's an incredible coordination
2: yeah they we start lo- to understand the importance of not
1: only a euro
2: coming from tzatziki yeah
1: no, i don't want but... to bring up bad memories man you're trying to bring up bad memories right now but, but, but hey john how do people how do people reach out and how do they learn more
5: yeah, so obviously there's our website, DHL.com. Uh, but I also want to mention uh, DHL Supply Chain's got a podcast. It's called uh, All Business, No Boundaries. You can find it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, we uh, we have a lot of great guests on there, uh, customer guests, and you, you also learn about what we're doing in the supply chain industry. So uh, if you're out there, uh, please go check it out. Thank
1: you so much. Excellent have a great stuff. weekend. Take care. And hopefully we see DHL Supply Chain November 8th to 10th over at F3, the biggest festival in freight. Take care. Good stuff. Okay. So, Michael Vincent, I promised it, man. So, you know, this issue comes out, this executive Biden order, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? About, and, Absolutely. The ocean, Absolutely it does. and the ocean containers. And now I worked in ocean shipping for years, right? I have I was operational there myself. experience. Right I have years on. of operational experience in this kind of stuff. And yeah. one thing that always stuck out to me was this thing called the box club. So I put this tweet out there to put a little context to what's going on. And I write, no, it's wild. Ocean freight has three main alliances who account for 78% of global container capacity and 96% of all East West trades, container capacity. That's as of January, 2020, that's That's only grown since by the way. And they have this thing called the box club, right? Where all the CEOs, and the alliances, they meet in secret two times a year. All of this is true. They have the best catering men. Have you ever been? (laughs) I wonder who pays for that catering. Well, lo and behold, then all of a sudden, this gentleman over here decides to subtweet me. Look at this thing. He's a journalist for the JOC, and he writes, a Google search, Log Tech Eric, Eric Johnson. He says a Google search is a powerful thing. Sometimes, instead of mindlessly flinging accusations about an industry on Twitter, you you can just do a search and find that something doesn't actually exist anymore. I can't believe you were mindlessly playing. He got me. No, he didn't. Here's my tweet. I wrote to him, you can at me. Your own site reports that it hasn't broken up and isn't planning to until the end of the year. Box club, right here, your headline, joc.com. Box club of ocean carrier CEOs to disband by end of year. It still exists. Why are you trying to hide it? It's still there. Also, simple Google search. I don't know what's wrong with your SEO if your own headline didn't come up for you, but it came up for me when I went looking for it.
2: Man, getting blown up by a dude in a pineapple shirt.
1: Yeah, that's the thing, man. <laughs> Give me a little cow. Well, here's the thing. like what is the point of this statement? Trying to make someone look stupid? Trying to make them dunk I on don't them? Know, I man. felt like Matt Damon in the bar in Harvard Square in Goodwill hunting. I'll like tell them? you something. You like apples? How do you like them apples? Let's talk about some dogs. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Those dog
2: days of summer. Very soothing. Very dog's afraid. Can you feel the stress? Of your Twitter war just I melting away?
1: I, look, I can turn that, I can turn that switch on and on. <laughs> and it's like, like I was I'm just hanging out, man, I'm just hanging on to making an observation, which is a real observation, and the guy has to act like I'm trying to, like, commit, like, going to Congress right now and be like, hey, you're really going to do something about this box club? No, I'm just pointing out that they do it. But you know what's funny, too? The JOC, they even describe it. This is from the JOC's own article in the FBI-rated box club in 2017. This is how they describe it, and I quote, the box club includes the CEOs of all the major container lines and allows only the heads of each company to participate at its twice yearly meeting it makes no announcement of its plans to meet the meeting location or what was discussed they make it sound like bohemian grove hmm but i guess when i do it's a problem to get a subtweet tweet me all right Let's look at some dogs. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, all right. Our first dog, Ben J. Coach, problem solver. He's showing off Ori, Ori, or Ori, aka Magai. He's a Siberian Husky who will first kill you with his cuteness and then won't leave your side.
2: Interesting. Gosh, does he? Are there any bones laying around like the other guy? Aaron Uh, Dunn. We got Aaron Dunn over here. We got Jack is ready for the summer, but typically goes shirtless so he can roll on the grass and catch some guys. Next one. Let's get Jack. There's Jack. Check out that shirt. But Jack likes to go shirtless and get some suntan every once in a while.
1: Brian Rice, he's got Hoosier. Hoosier loves – Brian Rice, he's got Hoosier. Look at Hoosier. Hoosier Hoosier. loves to play dress-up. With his daughter Addison, uh, Brian Rice, Chief Executive Officer over at Dre Depot. He also likes uh, Doge and Dogecoin and Ethereum as well. That's right. And hey, coming from the land,
2: Cleveland, my hometown is Tub Smith. Heidi Smith says, Tub Smith, and she is part of the operations team at Team Worldwide in Cleveland. She likes coming to work for me and has, uh, she's about, since she was about 10 weeks old, she's been going to work there. Beautiful. Right? Nice dog Steel in the office? sticky notes, paper towels, paper trash, cardboard, all that kind of stuff. Getting into mischief.
1: Lauren Krisky shares her dog. She's a senior account manager at Vizion. That is Shadow. Shadow. He likes to chase delivery people and rings their doorbell when he's done playing outside. Super smart dog. Wicked smart dog. Wicked smart yeah. dog. Here you go. Here's, here's a wicked fast
2: swimmer. Alicia Palmer sends in. This is Rudy. Oh. Uh, and Rudy likes to chase ducks in the lake. Yeah. And is convinced one day. Rudy's going to catch one of those ducks.
1: Whoa. (laughs) Jennifer Kember comes in. She's showing us her dog. That's Casper. He's a 14-year-old blockhead golden retriever, and he loves to go fishing. He loves it.
2: And hey, from uh Slickback, a simp named Slickback, right? Here's mine He's a hyper fun loving dog that likes to stay in the window.
1: Oh, very handsome dog. Nice uh, yeah, profile picture cool. too that he took there of him. Uh Sean Gerhardt, senior manager, contractual searching at Echo Global Logistics. He's uh he says longtime listener, first-time poster, my trusty hound, Cody. like uh, our guy in the back over there. Shout out Cody. He's a foxhound, dalmatian, beagle mix, and he loves nothing more than laying out in the grass under the hot sun, howling at anything that walks by. Cheers.
2: Actually, that's his doppelganger right there. Logistics Twitch says, this is Archie. Archie is not the brightest dog on the planet, but he certainly is the happiest. Check that out right
1: there. Oh, I love his little vampire teeth. Yeah, I love it. I love his little (laughs) vampire teeth. Dave Abel's president and CEO of the Dart Network. He shares with us his boys. Uh, Their names are Rusty and duke and uh one of them has a little trouble putting up with the other one i'll let you guess which one that is
2: (laughs) there you go hey trey griggs sends in a picture of tiger tiger here is very patriotic mini golden doodle who loves the camera unlike uh his dad trey
1: yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's just over two years old and a cuddle bug At only 23 pounds over there actually trey griggs i believe is roaming around boston right now Trey, please, please do not start any trouble at a bar in Harvard Square. All right. (laughs) Michael Drew, personalized logistics specialist, team worldwide. Michelle Drew, sorry. She says, uh, meet Bailey Boy. He's six-year-old and loves coming to work with Mommy to see all his friends at team worldwide. Cleveland, big shout-out from Cleveland, the hometown of the dude. By the way, no problem with remote work there. Maybe you let the dogs come in the office and uh, solve some issues.
2: That's exactly right.
1: That's exactly right. And now coming in, we had her on earlier, Christy. K- Knitchell. Initial, initial. She yep. was on earlier. She's got a few dogs. All of these ones coming up are her office dogs. We've got this beautiful one right here. Uh, what kind of dog is that? I don't know. It's I think. a cute dog. I think yeah, it's he's a cute, beautiful little dog. <laughs> uh, for those of you who want to see this thing, if you only listen to the audio version of the show and you're, you're really curious about these dogs, you can watch this show at tv.freightwaves.com. You can download the Freight Waves TV app and watch it. Our entire back catalog is there. After that, we have a little Maltese underneath that one with a, uh, with a Carhartt snow hat on, a little Maltese the white dog with a yeah, Carhartt that's, snow that's hat t- on.
2: Typical Cleveland, Ohio garb right there. Oh,
1: he, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially Live, in the winter. Love. <laughs> Especially <laughs> in the winter. you got to be wearing this. So. <laughs> Who's taking a nap over here? Is, like, taking a little Christmas nap on their uh, snowman blanket. It's another little beautiful dog. Big fan of that one. And we have one more. One more. The sleeping baby. little gizmo over here. Bring him up. He's on his back. He's white and he's got black ears. <laughs> the next dog.
2: Maybe Probably not. The next,
1: oh. Maybe they don't have it. Oh. Okay, Shall we'll, we'll I, have to put that one in later. So yeah. that was all the dogs. Everyone who submitted a dog, you have been entered in the contest to win a ticket to F3. We'll do the draw and we'll let someone know, whoever they want, we'll yeah. draw it on here on Wednesday. Ooh, next Wednesday we're going to draw yeah. it? Do I need to like bring a dog in and we could put like a bunch of treats out with the winner on it, whichever one picks? That is a
2: great idea. I think we should do that. Whichever treat gets picked and the name that's randomly on it. That's it.
1: You, you guys think that's fair? I think is so. Is that fair? Let me know if that's fair. I people out
2: there. I, think, I see them nodding. No, they probably the need to. Yeah. We'll look in the comments and find <laughs> so, out. I think it's, I think that's fair.
1: So big day, Michael Vincent. And I'll yeah. just side with that rant on there and say, Like, these yeah. are complex issues, right? They're very complex, So, yes. uh, look, like, my contention is calling someone out, trying to try and dunk on them, really silly. Like, I did my research. You know, maybe you should as well. But well, this I, is a tough thing. When you look at it, and we go back to that point that Craig Fuller made, nobody made a big a big stink about these rates leading up to the environment that we're in now. And now we're in it it's like, well now we need executive orders. It's like last year when all the truckers went down to Washington, Sure, sure. how do you unbundle? Do you think that it is, we can start with at least the, the drayage and the detention and because typically it's sort of at odds with the logic of, of the, the ports and the yard operators, because they charge that stuff to encourage you to move the stuff out quicker. But the problem is in this environment, you can't get the stuff out.
2: You can't, I mean, you almost, you liken it to, okay, it seems like there's some gouging going on, right? I mean, mm. when you're talking about containers that were, you know, 600 times more expensive and that's not an exaggeration. I mean, they're just unbelievably expensive. And then you got the demurrage being charged excessively by those that are causing it. Yeah. Is this something where you look into, I mean, you got, you know, kind of like these gouging laws when there's a, 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 a disaster, a natural disaster, a public emergency, um, is that something that could be looked into be doing this stuff? Because I don't know that price uh, you know, regulatory regulation is the answer.
1: You know, Patrick no, no. Berglund sort of touched this. We talked about this 25 years of hammering rates down. There's also the big issue here, and it only comes up when there's a hurricane, is the Jones Act, and we're not yeah. a shipbuilding nation. So what leverage do you have with a border order like this?
2: Do we go to a state-owned uh, maritime uh, industry here in the United States to I have mean, leverage? Or what do you do? I don't know.
1: Freight is th- is the vessels in the blood. Freight is. is what keeps the supply chain flowing. That's what keeps every business flowing. We're at a critical time in supply chain. We're,
2: We're at a very, yeah, We are. We absolutely are.
1: And it's tough. And it's t- and you even hear it. You hear the different perspectives. We hear the perspectives of the rail association, but we hear the perspective of the intermodal side and and what those challenges are. And I think the one good thing about supply chain is that we can all agree, you know, we need to work together, we need to learn more, and we operate in an environment that doesn't always make that easy.
2: No, that's absolutely true. I think the one thing that we need to keep in mind is the fact that the supply chains were severely strained, that almost every single link responded tremendously to the pressure and still is. And recognizing that there were issues in future proofing and improving the technology and the transparency, et cetera, efficiency is something that is needed. And the troops in our own industry are rallying to make that happen. I'm very proud of
1: it. They are. Hey, thank you all for joining us this week. And for this week of the dog days of freight, thank you, everyone, all the truckers, All the brokers, all the carriers, all the people of freight who submitted your beautiful dogs with us to share with the audience here as we had our own little best in show. We'll draw the winner next week go to F3. Meantime, you want to check out what F3 is, go to live.freightways.com. Click on F3. Next week, we got the Autonomous Vehicle Summit. That's going to be big time. Take care.